On this month's Healing 101, I will be speaking with incredible male experts about various different mental health disorders and treatments to mark Men's Mental Health Month. In England, around one in eight men has a common mental health problem such as depression, anxiety, panic disorder or addiction. It's important that we look at what factors affect men's mental health and how we can help more men find help and support. So when they do decide to ask for more help or guidance, we want to ensure that they all have the information that they need and we hope that this mini-series might provide them with a wealth of information and some new research that might address some of their questions. On today's Healing 101, I am speaking to Ryan Zafar, a neuropsychopharmacologist at Imperial College's Centre for Psychedelic Research, where he explores the neurobiology of drugs and addiction and how psychedelics may be used to treat individuals with mental health conditions. Ryan also works as a research officer for drug science, conducting policy and scientific work in the area of drug policy, and also appeared in a documentary looking at the impact of medical cannabis for children with epilepsy. I'm talking to him today all about addiction and how psychedelics might begin to play a more vital part in treatment. So I'd love to start by asking what initially piqued your interest in psychedelic treatment. It wasn't really psychedelic therapy that was the first thing that got me curious in the work that I do. It was more my interest in understanding the brain and understanding what it is about humans that makes us human. So one way that you can kind of approach that question is by actually looking at the link between the brain and the mind. And a great way to explore the brain and the mind was actually doing neuroimaging. So I was very lucky when I was maybe 16 or 17 that my current boss, Professor David Nutt, came to my school and gave a lecture on the impacts of LSD on the brain. And he spoke about how this was a powerful way to probe consciousness and a powerful way to understand sort of the extremities of the human condition and actually put a biology to it and a science to it to kind of quantify the almost unquantifiable. And so when I kind of looked at that image, it sort of felt like a, a catalyst for me. And I kind of looked at that moment in my life as kind of the pivotal point where I realized that I wanted to go down a research world where I could, you know, investigate psychiatric disorders, mental health, understand the brain a little bit better. And psychedelics seemed to be a great sort of avenue to undertake that course of study. What is the difference between the brain and the mind? That has been a question that has bogged philosophers for you know, thousands of years, like going back to Descartes, you look at the mind-body dualism. And I guess the way that I see it is that they're all interconnected. The mind is the brain and the brain channels the mind, I guess. The brain is the organ through which the mind is able to do its thinking and to do its existence, I guess. And, and I think right now, questions about consciousness and whether consciousness sits in the brain they're all questions that are being undertaken by different research groups around the world. And there's lots of different theories out there, but I don't think we really have an answer as to what the mind is, but we do have a good idea that it sits in the brain at least. And we'll find out in the next 10 years or so, I think a little bit more about human consciousness. It's definitely an emerging area of research. Yes, it's absolutely fascinating. And I think, as you say, as more and more of this conversation around neuroscience opens up, we'll hopefully have a much better idea as time goes on about how our minds and how our brains work and how to better manage them as psychedelic treatment is is proving. Exactly. Yeah. These kinds of like neuroscience led 
theories are like the best way that we currently have about exploring the brain because really we don't know much about it we've only had these tools for maybe the past 30 or 40 years and you know our, our knowledge about our brains our brains are like having have more computational power than all the world's computers combined so if you think about that all the world's computers combined that's our brains have more computational power than just that so we really don't know what it is that that's going on but we're you know we might get that soon so why do you think that there's still a stigma towards psychedelic substances even in a medical capacity or context i guess psychedelics have always at least since the 70s when they got banned so in 1971 uh was the year where psychedelics like lsd and psilocybin and dmt and other kind of more obscure ones you might not have heard of got put in schedule one of the misuse of drugs act and this was essentially driven by the u.s at the time they were scared that psychedelics were essentially going against foreign policy agenda movements of the u.s government at the time the U.S. government was very afraid that psychedelics were making people pacifists and making them go against the Vietnam War movement. They were worried that the hippie flower power movement was going to derail capitalism to some extent. And so during this time, there was a lot of news and media articles about the potential for psychedelics to perhaps make you go crazy or to you had kind of these provocative news stories about people, you know, falling off buildings and, you know, doing all of these dangerous stuff under the influence of psychedelics but actually those kind of perverse media stories which weren't necessarily true of the majority of the population who were actually having a very good time with psychedelics who were healing having communities developing love and kindness to one another those stories weren't really propagated in the media because it wasn't newsworthy enough now i think because of that kind of historical precedent that was set in the 70s it's almost become the status quo for governments throughout the world and the media up until recently to have this very kind of anti-drug stance. Illegal drugs are innately bad, so that's not alcohol or tobacco, which are drugs, by the way, but they are legal drugs in our society, but that these so-called illegal drugs, including psychedelics, cause great harm to individuals. And that's just perpetuated, I guess, from a very moralistic standpoint. And British people and the British political system is very much one that upholds those moral virtues of drugs are bad except for alcohol and smoking and so there's no real evidence to support any of this so there's no medical or scientific evidence to support that lsd or magic mushrooms are harmful but i think because of this historical narrative the stigma has kind of prevailed amongst our society and I would say probably in the last three or four years, things are starting to change slightly. We're starting to actually kind of take a step back, look at the evidence and say, which drugs are harmful? What what exactly is harm and who defines this systematically with evidence? And, and David Nutt and others at Drug Science uh, Charity that I worked for around 10 years ago did the first systematic assessment of all drugs assessing harm to self and harm to users. And by far, the one that came on top was that alcohol and smoking were by far considered the most harmful drugs in society, whereas drugs like LSD and magic mushrooms, nitrous oxide, uh, were the least harmful to society. And this has now been replicated by experts in Australia and in Europe. And so with this kind of research, we're now beginning to break that stigma down 
And on top of this research, I guess the kind of nascent psychedelic research area, which shows that these drugs could be possibly therapeutic to patients, is also slowly beginning to be seen. And we're seeing the media change and we're seeing public perceptions change about these things too. So I think I think the narrative is changing, but yeah, it's definitely been stigmatized for at least 40 to 50 years. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's the hallucinogenic side of things that people are really fearful of. And I think particularly myself, I've had an experience with medically assisted psilocybin and a lot of people's reaction was, oh my God, you, were you actually with it? Were you having visions of sort of unicorns flying in through the walls? Or as you say, did you want to go onto the top of a building and think you could fly? So I think it's, as you say, it's redefining the parameters of actually how these drugs are going to be used. And in a medical context, they can be incredibly powerful and in fact make way more inroads into a lot of mental illnesses than conventional prescribed medication that we might consider to be safe and appropriate. Yeah, I mean, it is a complete paradigm shift in mental health treatment and psychiatry. Up until now, most psychiatric medications revolve daily prescribing, some talking therapy. There's no altered state of reality. I think one of the fears comes from putting somebody in a psychiatric who has a psychiatric disorder into a world which is perhaps even more unstable or, you know, prone to things like, I mean, you don't get the classic hallucinations per se with psilocybin. There's other drugs like scopolamine and atropine, which have more of the classic sort of visual hallucinations. But what these drugs do tend to do is definitely bring you to the bigger issue or the big thing or the issues related to the theory of life, why you're here, and and it makes you ask the big questions of yourself. And I think because of the very nature of the experience being so profound on the individuals, I mean, people say that psychedelic therapies are in the top five experiences of their life, including childbirth, for example, or getting married. That, in and of its own right, can be scary to the medical establishment because they have to shepherd that in a way which is nurturing for the patient. But you know, there's a big responsibility that comes with, you know, putting patients under those kinds of profound states of altered consciousness. And it will take time. It'll take time for, you know, the majority of doctors to come on board. But the evidence is pretty clear, actually, that with these mystical experiences, so these experiences induced by taking high doses of magic mushrooms or LSD, they seem to correlate with treatment outcomes. So the patients that have greater amounts of mystical experiences or emotional breakthrough during the trip tend to do better in terms of reductions in depression scores, reductions in addiction scores. Even so, you know, an example of a study with alcohol-dependent patients were given two large doses of psilocybin. And actually what they found was that the patients that had the highest degree of something called oceanic boundlessness, so the feeling of being infinite with the world and the universe around them, they had the greatest decrease in craving 36 months down the line than those that had lower scores. So those that had lower scores didn't really seem to have reductions in craving, but those that had this feeling of infinitesimy with the universe tended to do better off in the long run. So yeah, I think it's now being shown that the trip in and of its own right, has some kind of therapeutic uh, value to it and definitely one that we need to explore further. Yes, I mean, for something like OCD, it's still relatively, I'd say, 
unexplored, but I think it's a, you see things through a new lens and it's not as though it can transform you overnight for something like OCD, but it suddenly just shifts a few things. And I think that caged anxiety that really used to just plague my daily existence has somewhat abated. It hasn't gone, but that it's so multifaceted and I could talk a lot about the shifts that it's made. But I'm curious to ask you what you think in terms of what disorders it's most effective in treating. Psychedelics tend to work for a cluster of disorders that we call internalizing disorders. So that's one way of looking at it. And they can be considered to be disorders which are characterized by ruminative thinking or kind of repetitive negative thought loops. And if you think about those concepts of rumination, they actually apply to a lot of different psychiatric disorders. So in depression, you might be having very negative thought loops about oneself that might be ruminative. For example, I'm not good enough or perhaps even suicidal thoughts as well, which seem to be repetitive. And then in addiction, it seems to be a kind of repetitive thinking about the substance that you want to use. It's like, when am I going to get my next drink or when am I going to get my next hit of heroin for example and then you know in eating disorders it might be i'm not thin enough or i weigh too much or in food addiction you know it's just like a compulsive thought process in ocd i mean if it's related to cleaning for example it might be i need to clean this x amount of time to relieve my stress or i need to you might even not know that you need to do to relieve your stress it's just you have that nagging thought that you need to do something and what we've found actually from some of our research is that all of these so-called internalizing disorders, so anxiety, depression, addiction, eating disorders, they seem to be characterized by an overactivity of a system in the brain called the default mode network. And so what the default mode network is, is essentially a network in the brain that seems to be active when you're daydreaming. So when you just sat down, your default mode network perks up. And actually, overactivity of this is found to be associated with many of these internalizing psychiatric disorders. Now, what we found in our first brain imaging studies, before we even start any of our depression work, is that what psychedelics tend to do is they shut down this region. So they stop this region from being active, they reduce the activity in it. And that actually might be one of the ways, one of the neurobiological ways in which you actually can help an individual to break free from that ruminative cycle of thinking that they're stuck in. So pharmacologically, psychedelics are reducing that kind of repetitive thought cycle loop in your brain. And that's therefore the opposite to what the disorder is driving. Now, at the same time, what we saw in the brain was that while shutting down that brain region, which is associated with, you know, these disorders, there's an increase in connectivity. So by shutting that bit of the brain down, it allowed the brain to connect with different parts of the brain, different regions that it wouldn't normally be able to do. And what we think this might facilitate is the formation of new ideas and new thoughts about oneself and one's disorder, and perhaps makes you realize things about why you may have become ill in the first place, or maybe give you new coping strategies to get out of these you know, rigid maladaptive thinking patterns that you've been stuck in as, as a cause of your condition. And so back to your question about what disorders the psychedelics tend to work for, we can say that they're probably transdiagnostic because they can work on this very kind of primitive 
thinking led disorders, which are characterized by overthinking and ruminative thinking. We know that there's a neurobiology now, which uh, speaks to shutting down or stopping these kind of loops from being ingrained in individuals. And yet it seems to be that there's a lot of clinical trials now in play, which are across these internalizing disorders. And they all seem to be showing, you know, by and large, an enduring effect. So patients given the treatment, a single dose of psilocybin or two doses with therapy on either side, that their scores on whatever clinical scale that they're being tested for reduce and that there seems to be an enduring effect. So these treatments tend to work at three months, at six months. And in some cases, we've seen long-term follow-up success of 12 months after just one or two doses. So these are incredibly powerful treatments that we've never seen uh, the likes of in psychiatry before. It's very interesting that you mention the time frame because I'm definitely finding some of my symptoms are returning with quite a vengeance in the last sort of couple of months. So I did the macro dose nine months ago. So it would coincide quite nicely with that timeline. At the moment, what doses are you tending to administer on your trials and at what frequency? So when you say two doses, how far apart are those two doses and how long are you finding that the effects last? So we published data in our in our last study with patients uh, with major depressive disorder. We gave them one 10 milligram dose, which is considered to be a medium dose of psilocybin. And then we gave them a 25 milligram dose, which is considered to be a macro dose. And this was two weeks apart. And we are just doing the six month follow up. And what we're seeing by and large is that the majority of patients given that treatment in the psilocybin group seem to uh, persist in terms of having reductions in depression scores and increase in well-being, increase in flourishing, reduction in anxiety and decrease in suicidality and other sorts of measures of uh, mental well-being. In general, what we tend to think now is that larger doses are better, so 25 milligrams. This equates to around maybe four to five grams of dried magic mushrooms. If you're looking at LSD, a large dose of LSD is anywhere between 150 and 200 micrograms of LSD. And it's usually those bigger doses, which we think are, you know, the ones that hold the therapeutic value. In fact, recently, a company called Compass Pathways actually did a study where they compared one milligram, 10 milligram and 25 milligram doses. And they separated participants into those three groups. And you can see very clear kind of dose related difference in clinical outcomes. So the group that had the 25 milligram did a lot better than the group with the 10 and the 10 did a lot better than the group that is the one milligram in terms of reductions in their depression scores. There's been one study which had a 12 month follow up from John Hopkins University, patients with depression. And I think over 70% of patients a year actually had sustained remission in their depression scores. So I think we need to find out what the redosing schedule is. I think that will be the next era of research. What I imagine it to be is a bit like a booster, maybe like a COVID vaccine even. So maybe people might need to go back once a year or twice a year and, you know, go get their top up. I see psychedelic therapy as like something that you evolve with over time and you can use psychedelics to reestablish new problems that come into your life because, I mean, Mental well-being is a lifelong process. It's not something that, you know, you just take a silver bullet of one psychedelic therapy session and, you know, you can go off into the sunset and you're all fine. It's 
a process looking after your your well-being and things happen in your life beyond your control a lot of the time and that's generally the case with a lot of people with mental health problems is that they they have events that happen to them which you know traumatic events for example are beyond their control and you know that could happen in the future to anyone who has recovered and so this kind of lifelong commitment to sitting down with yourself and actually working through your problems is is something that I actually foresee psychedelics being a very important part of in sort of continued well-being over the course of a lifespan. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the and partnership's belief in the power of and, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the and partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T H E A N D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the and partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. Psilocybin versus LSD. What what are the main differences between the two and how they work? LSD was the first psychedelic to be found. It was found in 1938 by a Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman. It was actually on April the 19th and that day is called Bicycle Day. So he was trying to make a drug called a neuroleptic which is a drug essentially to reduce seizures and he's working for a Swiss pharmaceutical company called Sandos which is now Novartis. So it's actually Novartis, big pharma that uh, brought this to the world. He was traveling on his bike on his way back from his lab in Amsterdam and he accidentally ingested some of this LSD and he obviously had a very profound experience you know traveling through the streets of Amsterdam on his bike and yeah so that was kind of the birthplace of LSD and then psilocybin was kind of found in the 50s and it was used in Central America in Oaxaca and there was this woman called Maria Sabina who was part of a Mexican tribe at the time invited some journalists over to her tribe and shared uh, the magic mushroom sh- ceremony that had been passed down through generations at the time. So psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms and LSD is a synthetic. Now, what we found uh, using biomedical techniques over the last 50 or 60 years is that they both bind to the same receptor in the brain. And this is called the serotonin 2A receptor, the 5-HE2A receptor. This receptor is primarily expressed in an area of the brain called the cortex, which is the most evolved part of the brain, and the neocortex, which is, you know, really the most evolved part of the brain. It essentially what separates us from chimpanzees and orangutans, which are our closest ancestors in terms of uh, genetic lineage. And so what we think is that the serotonin 2A receptor is fundamentally important in higher order thinking. So that's in cognition and language processing and the skills that make humans have the ability to self-reflect and it's quite intriguing that psychedelics actually bind to this receptor in order to have their effects 
So what this tells us is that psychedelics might be very closely linked to the essence of human evolution and consciousness. And then there's some people that believe that actually the evolution of humans and, you know, sentience and sentient beings may have come from hominids or close mammalian ancestors from the monkey family actually taking psychedelics and their brains evolving and actually growing the neocortex as a result. There's actually evidence to show that if you stimulate the serotonin 2A receptor, that actually promotes neurogenesis in the neocortex, so the development of new neurons. So there's actually this kind of biomedical link here, which shows that it might be very closely linked to the evolution of civilization and human thought, which is that's, that's a completely different segue. But yeah, both of these drugs, LSD, magic mushrooms, stimulate this receptor. Magic mushrooms is for about six hours. LSD binds to a few different other receptors, so dopamine receptors in the brain, so has a little bit of a different flavor to it. Uh, it lasts for 12 hours usually, so it's a bit of a longer molecule. It sticks into the receptor a bit more stickier than uh, the magic mushroom psilocybin does. But the experience itself is is the same. So there's been research which looks at you know the actual content of experiences and generally speaking people have very similar sorts of insights and lsd research was actually sort of the first research that was done in psychedelic research in the 50s and 60s in the u.s and around the world um it was only recently that psilocybin has actually caught up the kind of backlog of lsd research that uh prevailed in the first kind of psychedelic movement but yeah, both drugs are now being looked at in terms of their clinical effectiveness. I think there's more psilocybin clinical research and LSD at the moment, but you know they're both showing efficacy across a range of different disorders. It's fascinating that they both work in the same system, really, in the same brain system, and 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 yet one's chemical and one's natural. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, there's a whole host of other kind of we call them classical psychedelics. So DMT is another version. We actually have endogenous DMT within our bodies. We know that for a fact. We don't know exactly what it does. Some people think it's involved in dreamlike states, near-death experiences. And then we also, and it's also found in the ayahuasca plant. So that also binds to the serotonin 2A receptor. There's some other ones like mescaline and the peyote cactus, uh, which is used by the Native American church. That also binds to the serotonin 2A receptor. There's some other ones, a toad venom called 5-MeO-DMT, which is now being explored. These are called your classic psychedelics, and then we have your atypical or non-classic psychedelics, and they include ketamine, MDMA, ibogaine, and some kind of other more obscure ones. But yeah, the classic psychedelics are all the same receptor system, the serotonin 2A, and the non-classics have a bit of a different mechanism of action, but are still being harnessed for their therapeutic potential. What are the benefits of combining psychotherapy whilst administering the substance and how is that done? Yeah, it's very important we touch on psychotherapy actually because I think people may assume that it's just, you know, take some drugs and, you know, hey presto, we're we're cured. So we have a very important way of dealing with patients. We have something called preparation, which is a period the day before a trip where the participants will sit down with a trained therapist and essentially try to map out what they want to achieve from their therapy session, from their psychotherapy session. So this can be an understanding of their disorder. It can be gaining clarity of a certain event in their life, which I think might be important to why they have ended up perhaps with 
feeling a certain way, you know, it might be reconnecting with a loved one who's passed away if they are suffering from grief, as an example. And so this preparation also allows for the therapist to debrief the participant on, you know, what the journey will be like. And what they inform them is that there might be some challenging experiences that they may face, but the best way is to go through and to not resist the challenge. In fact, the majority of people that have psychedelic therapy sessions with psychiatric disorders report having at least some kind of challenging experience. And this confrontation, I guess, with the shadow and confrontation with, you know, underlying psychological trauma that really is quite important in the therapeutic sense. And so during the session itself, there are therapists on either side of the participant that help serve as guides. They're more like oxygen tanks. So the analogy is that they'll be there to help the participant, but the participant has to kind of swim down to the ocean bed and, you know, find that nuggets of wisdom, maybe meet some sea creatures along the way that might, you know, scary but maybe find some pearls of wisdom as well and then to kind of swim up to the water at the end once they've found those pearls of wisdom and they've you know developed a new sense of of ideas of themselves in respect to their illness and and then the day after what what we do is integration and that's sitting down again with the participants and trying to make sense of the trip and if there was some insights that might be relevant you know, it can be quite abstract at times. It can be, you know, I had this kind of epiphany. Uh, there was Maybe there were some celestial bodies that were telling them something interesting, or maybe there was a vision that they had. And actually making sense of that with the participant is really crucial. And they are kind of left with a series of tools that they can take away from that session to help them to navigate the world. So it's not like you come out of the therapy session 100%. You, you might do, you might feel ready to take on anything. But what it does is provide you with the skills and the insight specifically to help to, you know, navigate stressful situations and to understand yourself better. And then you go away and you have to practice that after. And, you know, there's, there's support following. So there's several integration sessions after and follow-ups. But that's so that's the therapy model. So prep, dosing, and integration, and the psychotherapy element of it can vary. So in in, in addiction services, you might want to use motivational interviewing, which is a form of psychotherapy. There's some other therapies, acceptance and commitment therapy. I don't think anybody has got a real true understanding of the best therapeutic model yet. I think that's also the next wave of research that we really need to get our teeth into and how the different kinds of psychotherapy may or may not add extra benefit for certain types of disorders. So that's still an area that's actively being explored. And it is very interesting. Taking psilocybin, which is often administered now, I think in shamanic practices with more spiritual type leaders versus in a medical context. And it would be fascinating to do a research study on the different effects that that maybe has depending on the context. Yeah, I mean, actually, there's some research that we've we've done. We called it the ceremony study, and a research a colleague of mine, Hannes Kartner, who's now at um, UCSF in San Francisco, he went to these ceremonial retreats and wanted to kind of understand what the drivers of therapeutic change were. 
and understand sort of the practices, the culturally embedded psychedelic therapy versus clinical psychedelic therapy that we do in the lab. And he did some very interesting research and found that this principle called communitas, or which essentially is community, and the feeling of togetherness and going through a journey as a group, an interpersonal relationship with the shaman, all sort of led to greater outcomes in terms of well-being. So these weren't necessarily, I mean, some patients may have gone there to self-medicate, but the general kind of outcome was a well-being scale. So how better people felt than themselves and different metrics such as functioning, social life, pain, sleep, etc. And what seemed to be the mediator of all of this was this sense of community that was fostered in these kind of ayahuasca retreats and ceremonial retreats that seemed to be the and the viewing of togetherness with participants also in it seemed to be the driver of change. And that's actually really quite a beautiful story, but it really speaks to I guess the issue of modern day mental distress and that it's probably driven a lot by lack of community and a lack of support, a lack of social infrastructure around us that's maybe driving people to develop, well, not driving them, but, you know, increasing their risk of developing, you know, addictions to fill that hole or depressions where they, you know, retract away from society because they don't have that infrastructure around them. And so... I thought that was a really nice way to kind of drive home the point that community is essential to strong mental well-being and to actually facilitate that in terms of your recovery too, even if you were in a clinical psychedelic session. As I alluded to earlier, that feeling of connectedness is definitely something which featured after I had taken the psilocybin. It, it Suddenly you have that renewed sense of connectedness both within yourself and the mind and the body, but also to other people. Um, and and during the experience, I definitely had visions of friends and family members who I really cared about or who had just really featured, I guess, in my life in a big way. And seeing them also with a renewed lens of empathy and love and compassion, as opposed to some which I felt a lot of distress and maybe anger and, and sadness and resentment towards. So that feeling of connectedness is is essential. And it's a very interesting point that actually connectedness is really what lifts us out of some of our our worst moments and and feeling that you're part of something bigger can be hugely therapeutic absolutely i mean there's a there's a famous quote by johan Haring who basically said the opposite of addiction is connection not sobriety which i think is is a really profound statement and it just speaks to this kind of human necessity to have connection i mean we this is fundamental we are as mammals we are hardwired to need to rely on others to do things to function to survive to thrive we need people around us and yeah psychedelics you know have the power to re-establish our own connections with that society or at least encourage us to proactively engage with one and I think, yeah, I think you're right. And it sounds like from your experience, it it might have helped you as well to re reconnect with those aspects of your life. Absolutely. Ryan, what do you see as the future for psychedelic treatment? I mean, do you think it's going to be able to be rolled out as quickly as we might hope? Or do you think it's going to be five, 10 years down the line that we see it as being generally prescribed for a lot of these disorders? Yeah, it's a... 
an important question. So this year, as of 1st of July in Australia, psilocybin therapy will be legal for Australians under a uh, the prescription of a specialist psychiatrist, specifically for treatment-resistant depression, and then MDMA will be uh, legally prescribable for uh, PTSD. So this is, you know, profound. It's the first country in the world that has made in the, in the modern era to allow for the legal prescription of either of these drugs. That's one of the countries where, you know, everyone will be keeping their eyes on to see sort of how that goes. In the US, we know that Joe Biden has now set up a federal task force to deal with the nascent uh, psychedelic integration into Western medicine. And so next year, it's likely in the US at least, that MDMA will be the first psychedelic therapy treatment to be legalized and actually prescribed throughout the country. Now, the UK, we are not exactly there yet, unfortunately. The UK government has spoken about this in the House of Commons and Parliament. Home Office are aware of the research that's going on and groups like Minor Imperial really were the catalyst for this kind of renaissance that we're seeing now. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be on the list of priorities. Uh, Swella Braverman, for example, she wanted to make cannabis a class A drug and last week made nitrous oxide a class C drug. So if anything, our drug policy is going in the complete wrong direction <laughs> with this new Tory government. So I wouldn't hold my breath for this country. What I do think though is that in, the, in this decade at least, the UK will see psychedelic therapy being able to be accessed by patients. I mean, right now you can legally access ketamine therapy in the UK, but psilocybin, maybe three, four years off. Uh, there's some big trials that need to sort of happen. So Compass Pathways are doing something called phase three clinical trials, which uh, they're going to test in a large number of patients. And if things go to plan and if the efficacy is shown as it has been in some smaller trials, they will finish in about 2025 and maybe about a year or so after that, uh, the documents will be in place. How it will integrate within the NHS is, you know, a very difficult question to answer. But I don't think we need to be too pessimistic about it. I mean, depression, to keep someone in hospital with depression for one week costs about ten to £15,000. And one of these kind of psychedelic therapy sessions costs about £6,000. But what we're doing with £6,000 is we're essentially, you know, perhaps curing some of these people so they would never have to go into hospital will never have to have chronic treatment for the rest of their lives. So actually, what will hugely benefit the government in making this decision is not just the scientific data, it's also the cost effectiveness. And that's something that we're doing now as a charity drug science in collaboration with some other companies, is we're doing a health economic assessment that we're going to submit to a regulatory body called NICE to compare the cost of psilocybin therapy treatment versus antidepressants and versus talking therapy. And then that might be an impetus or a stimulus for the government to think, okay, you know, the NHS are going down. We've seen the news. We don't need to think twice about the current, you know, junior doctor strikes at the moment. We need new interventions to make patients better. Depression, you know, costs tens of hundreds of billions internationally. I think the cost of addiction is 450 billion annually. Patients aren't receiving treatment. 40% of patients relapse from psychiatric meds within six months. And by, you know, a year on, you know, only about 20, 30% really seem to be getting better. That's 80% of psychiatric 
70 to 80% of the psychiatric population not receiving effective treatment. So, you know, there's an economic and social and health need to innovate in this area. And I think the government are aware of that. And, you know, psychedelics show promise. Then we have true potential within this decade to really change, you know, the face and the future of mental health for a lot of people. Well, I think it's a fantastic note to finish on. I mean, I feel so grateful for the work you do. And thank you so much for this absolutely fascinating conversation, which I know so many people will just listen to and have their eyes opened. No, thank you so much. And yeah, you're right. Hope is hope and promise, I think, is the two key things that we also hope for. And I guess the evidence will speak for itself, but we're hopeful based on that. And so I think there's a lot more to come in the next few years for psychedelics, for sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258. Thank you.